Friends, if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 as we continue now, I think, on our fifth week in this chapter on the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and our soon resurrection with him. We're in a study in which we've seen the Apostle Paul prove the resurrection both from the witness of the scriptures which predicted it and the eyewitnesses, the hundreds of them, who saw it. And then we saw as well the promise of the resurrection. Jesus lives and so shall we, all who believe in him. And tonight we see the plan of the resurrection. The question might be asked, well, what's coming for us? What should we anticipate? What will the resurrection be like? For us, Paul addresses that now in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 35 through 49. Let me invite you to hear now the word of God and consider the good that we have coming. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for stars differ from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life giving spirit but it is not the spiritual that is first but the natural and then the spiritual the first man was from the earth a man of dust the second man is from heaven as was the man of dust so also those who are of the dust and as is the man of heaven so also are those who are of heaven Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Amen. This is God's word. Let's look to him in prayer. Father, we bless you and thank you for these great, precious promises in Jesus. We pray now that you would Open the eyes of our hearts that they might be enlightened. 
that we would know what is the hope to which you have called us, what are the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of your power toward us who believe, that power that raised Christ from the dead and will raise all your people. Help us to know and believe these things and to rejoice in them. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You know how the monarch butterfly starts its life? This beautiful black striped, orange, vibrant, flying creature with a four-inch wingspan. It begins as a a very hungry caterpillar. Uh, Now, not to follow the child's book, The Very Hungry Caterpillar, because the illustrator's have played with the details a little bit for children's lit. But the monarch begins as a tiny white egg that turns to pale yellow. It becomes then a yellow, black, and white striped caterpillar. It eats and eats and gets longer and plumper, shedding its skin again and again as it grows to about two inches long. And then it stops eating. Hangs upside down, attached to a twig or a leaf, and molts, and becomes a shiny chrysalis. The chrysalis is blue-green, with a band of black and gold on the end of the abdomen. Within its protective casing, the caterpillar radically transforms. What happens? Oh, first, the caterpillar basically digests itself on its own enzymes, dissolving all its tissues except for just a few cells. If you were to cut open a chrysalis at just the right moment, caterpillar soup would ooze out. But over the course of a few weeks, the caterpillar ooze combines with a few remaining cells to organize and reorganized into a highly developed, bright orange, flying, winged, beautiful creature called the monarch butterfly. It's absolutely astounding. But no more so than the transformation that awaits all who believe in Jesus at the resurrection. For we experience physical death in this life, but you have never experienced resurrection. What happens at a believer's death? The Bible tells us that the soul departs and goes to be with Jesus. As Jesus said to the repentant thief upon the cross, today you will be with me in paradise. Today, he says, not tomorrow or some future event. The soul went to be with Jesus while the body waits in the grave awaiting the resurrection. That's why the Apostle Paul could say with enthusiasm, I I desire to depart And to be with Christ, which is far better. I'd rather be with him than with you, is what he tells the Philippians. And then he says, but I know the Lord's going to keep me around a little while longer to do ministry. But I want to go. And the reason I want to go is I'm going to go be with Jesus. So the soul goes there. But the body waits. Resurrection. Now somebody will ask the question. Verse 35. But how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Now look, it's, it's not a bad question in and of itself. I mean, Paul answers it, and we're glad that he did. But the persons asking it here in Corinth 
are not probably asking it with a kind of tentative doubt, but more with a, a arrogant scoffing. Well, how are the dead raised? I mean, you know, what kind of body are they going to have? I mean, after all, we all know you stick them in the grave. And eventually the worms get them and dust returns to dust and ashes to ashes. And what about the people who are lost at sea and the sharks eat them? What about the people who've been martyred or burned at the stake and everything is gone? What happens to that? This is the kind of attitude they have in the way in which they're asking the question. And certainly we could we could ask the question ourselves, you know, with a, a very self-righteous or very self-centered uh, approach. Um, I mean, after all, who's really happy with the body that they have? Now, I know we're all supposed to be content, but are you really content? I mean, how many of us have not said, I'm short, can't I be taller? At least in the resurrection, can I get another inch or two? I'm so large-boned, I'd like to be petite. I, I'm a blonde, but I want to be a brunette. Oh, at the resurrection, please, um, can't I just blend in? I always stand out. Or can't I just finally stand out? I always kind of blend in. I mean, we, ask, we say these things, right? And Paul answers us, but he more importantly answers the Corinthians here with their kind of arrogance about, well, how could this be? He says to them what? He says, don't be a fool. It will so far exceed your expectations and dreams, it'll blow you away. And Paul here doesn't want them to have silly ideas. It's not like something out of a TV show like The Walking Dead. And this, the resurrection isn't like uh, the dying, then waking up and walking around like zombies or Frankenstein or anything like that. No, no, no. What does he say about the resurrection? Let's look at that. Paul, in addressing them about it, does a couple of things. One, he starts with his analogies illustrations, if you will, in verses 35 through 41. Then at verse 42, he begins to just directly explain what he means by all of this. And uh, along the way, we'll look at both those things as well as some applications. So we'll start with the analogies, the illustrations. Verses 35 through 41. Paul begins at verse 36, after saying, you foolish person, person, he begins with an analogy from botany. Notice the language. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or some other grain. And what is Paul saying there? Well, he's taking the idea of a seed, a, a dead-looking, bare, dry seed that you put in the ground, hopefully into some moist soil. And eventually, if there's any justice in the world... Something grows out of it and the cutworms don't knock it back. Only the gardeners understand what I just said. But life rises out of the ground. Vibrant, living, green, leafy vegetables and plants, right? Now what, what came out of the ground was organically related to the seed that went in. And that's Paul's idea. It's different than it, but it's related in, in what sense, we might ask, is a sprouting acorn the same as a fully grown oak tree? It's not the same form. It's not the same in appearance, but it is the same organism. Incredible differences, but there's continuity. Much the same is true of the human body. I mean, scientists tell us that, that you are the same person you were, and we believe this, 
when you were born. And yet every seven years, your cells have cycled through and been sloughed off and regenerated. And you'll get to be 100. And we'll look at you and we'll say, well, you're you. You're the person you were when you were born. And yet, and your body is the body. And yet, obviously, it's very different. Verse 38, Paul goes on, but God gives it a body as he has chosen, and each kind of seed, its own body. So what he's saying is that it's fitted with the kind of body that serves the purpose God intended for it. And that's an important point, actually. It's God who gives the body that he chooses to give. The Corinthians were hung up here on the idea that the dead body must rise as it already is. And sort of, sort of come to life in, from that. And Paul's point is the issue is not how does the body rise so much as who raises the body and for what purpose. The sovereign God will do as he pleases and if he chooses to raise a body in a new form, he'll do so. So there's his analogy from, uh, from agriculture. Then he has an analogy from zoology. Verse 39, he goes on. For not all... Flesh is the same, but there's one kind for humans, another for animals, another for the birds, another for fish. In other words, Paul, what's Paul saying? He's saying, well, you know, God uses carbon, oxygen, nitrogen, hydrogen to create Eskimos and elephants and eagles and eels. People and animals and swimming things and flying things. Can't he also reorganize our material substance and make something incredibly new and different? He does it in so varied a way with the animal kingdom. Can he not do that with us? That's Paul's point. Then he takes an illustration from astronomy, verses 40 and 41. All the bodies of the solar system, he says, are not the same. There are heavenly bodies. Look Look at his language, and earthly bodies. But the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, and the glory of the earth is of another and the sun is not the same as the moon and as that great authority wikipedia tells us our sun is hot plasma interwoven with magnetic fields i know that just rolled off your mind when i said what is the sun hot plasma interwoven with magnetic fields it's three-fourths hydrogen approximately a quarter helium with a little bit of oxygen and iron and neon thrown in But we all know the moon is different. I mean, as everybody knows, the sun is made of gas, but the moon is made of cheese. Right? And do you know the the little rhyme, hey diddle diddle, the cat and the fiddle, the cow jumped over the moon, the dog laughed to see such craft, and the dish ran away with the spoon? That may be true. But I want to know if the cow jumped over the sun, how quickly would it broil? And can I get some moon cheese on it in the bun? Oh, anyway, Paul's point is, think of it. The sun, the moon, and the stars, how radically different they are. All this stuff in the world made from the basic common materials of the physical universe that God himself has made, yet arranged so unusually different. Paul's point is God can take any of that material stuff and make this amazing variety of complexity so that you get pineapples and people and pandas and penguins, piranhas and Pluto. Likewise, in the resurrection, expect it to be different and very much better. 
and yet for you to be you and not somebody else. And so he gives the analogies and now he gives the explanation in verses 42 to 49. Notice the language of his explanation. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It's sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, it's raised in power. It's sown a natural body, it's raised a spiritual body. Five contrasts here. First, the body that is sown is perishable, but it's raised imperishable. It's, it's sown in corruption. It's, it's liable to, and we all experience disease and aging and death is what he's saying. But your resurrection body will be healthy and incorruptible. Does it bother you? Does it bother you yet that your body gets ill that it grows old? And do you worry yet that once you've passed your prime, your body will only be able to do less and less? Does it bring fear to you that one day your body will die? Well, then know this, says Paul, that when you rise in Christ, you will take on a body that will never get sick, never grow frail, that will never experience death ever again. It's sown corruptible, it's raised incorruptible. Secondly, it's sown in dishonor, it's raised in glory, he says. It is buried as dead flesh. There's nothing attractive about a dead body. However much we might hope that an expert will make the dead body look something like the sleeping body of a person we have known. And yet, if you've seen the dead, you know that it is not. It is not what once was. It has lost the splendor and the attractiveness. And yeah, we absolutely ought to treat the dead body with respect. Paul isn't saying don't dishonor it. We ought to treat it with great respect. This is a loved one. This is someone people know and love and care about. This is a person who's made the image of God, and they are a person who's body and soul. Yet the fact remains that what is placed in the grave is ashes to ashes, dust to dust, earth to earth. But our body that is raised is raised in glory. It will be raised light and luminous and radiant and brilliant and exalted, and glorious, and attractive. And then he goes on to say, a body that's sown is sown in weakness. Like a plant uprooted and left to dry in the noonday sun, it withers away and has no vigor. Does your weakness bother you? (laughs) No matter who you are or how strong you are, you have limits. Have you encountered them yet? You can't accomplish what you see others accomplish. There's always someone stronger or faster or smarter or better coordinated than you are. And however good you might be, eventually your strength and your skill are going to decline. You may even become bedridden before they lay you in a grave. But at the resurrection, Paul says, our dead body will be raised with great power and in great power, and it will be full of power. 
We will, we might say, be superhuman in power compared to anything you've ever experienced here. You'll have more energy, more physical capability, more stamina, more athleticism, more speed, more coordination, more durability than you have ever had or could imagine. And here we may have youthful vigor. I mean, you can knock a teenage boy over flat backwards and he pops up like a young spring shoot. You knock his dad over and he doesn't recover as quickly. Ripped a toenail off this week wrestling my teenage boy. That's not in the notes and you didn't want to know that, but there it is. No one knows how long it'll take that toenail to come back. But we can also have the the mental maturity of years. Oh, that I'd have it. But, But at the same time, declining health. Now imagine having the peak performance of body and mind a hundredfold, a thousandfold, a millionfold. You can't imagine how glorious, how awesome it will be. The body that is sown in the ground is sown in weakness. It will be raised, he says, in power. And it's sown a natural body, he says, and it's raised a spiritual body. It goes into the earth as a body that's made of the earth and for life on the earth. But it is raised a spiritual body. And by that he doesn't mean an immaterial body or a non-physical body. He's actually calling it a body. It's not, it's not that your soul is reunited with some outline sketch of your soul. It is, of the, it is a spiritual body. What does that mean? Well, in the rest of the book of Corinthians, when something is spiritual, it is of the Holy Spirit. Just when, as a man, a spiritual man is led by the Holy Spirit, or a spiritual mind is one dominated by the Holy Spirit, or spiritual gifts are the gifts that the Holy Spirit gives. So a spiritual body is a body given by the Spirit, fit for the fullness of the Spirit, and dominated by the Spirit for life in the Spirit, and the new creation the Spirit makes. In the fifth place, he says, It will be sown like Adam, but it will be raised like Christ. Now, that's not the exact way he puts it, but notice verse 45 and following. He says, thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it's not the spiritual that's first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven, as was the man of dust. So also those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also those who are of heaven. If there's a natural body, there's a spiritual body. Adam was given a natural body and had life breathed into him. Jesus, who is the last Adam, he had a natural body, a real true human body. But his body died, his soul departed, and then his soul was brought back into reunion with his body. It was raised a spiritual body, and in that body he gives life to others, he says. And it's not that the spiritual is first, but that the natural was first, and then the spiritual. The Corinthians thought the spiritual things came first, and then the natural. Uh, But Paul is saying to them, don't get too far ahead of yourself here. You are, you are born anew into Christ. 
But you have not experienced all that there is in Christ. You're still a natural body, sown a natural body. You have yet to experience the fullness of resurrection. The first man, he says, was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. Adam was physical and of the dust of the earth, just as we are. The last Adam, Christ, though a true man, a real human body, yet a spiritual man filled with the Holy Spirit, is raised in power and he gives life to all who believe in him. So that just as he says, as he closes out, just as verse 49, we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. In other words, he's saying, you are like Adam now, but one day you will be like Christ in his resurrected body. Now contemplate that for a moment. What do we know about the body of Jesus in its resurrected form? Well, we know that he was raised from the dead. We know that he was seen by his friends. We know that he was touched by Thomas. It was a real human body. He wasn't a ghost. He wasn't a phantasm. He ate breakfast of bread and fish by the side of the sea with his own disciples. Yet we know that he had the ability to appear in a locked room. We know that he had the ability to suddenly disappear or vanish, Luke tells us, and John tells us. Uh, After he had revealed himself to the two disciples on the walk to Emmaus, he revealed himself in the breaking of the bread. They didn't know who he was at first. Then he broke bread with them, and they, they knew it was Jesus. And then it says he vanished from their side. Now let me speculate for a minute about that, and I mean speculate. But I think he's inviting our imagination here. Might, might Jesus have been multidimensional beyond the three dimensions we know? What if the resurrection body of Jesus was to three dimensions? What three dimensions is to two? I mean, imagine a two-dimensional figure, a stick drawing on paper, Imagine it then leaping off the page, coming to life, and suddenly it's three-dimensional. Instead of just height and length, it now has width, too. Imagine that. Now, what if the resurrection body of Jesus interacted and lived in four dimensions or more? I know you can't imagine that. You're stuck in three dimensions. You're just the stick figure on the page. Can't imagining, can't, and you can't imagine getting out of the page. But what if Paul is saying with Christ an entirely new mode of existence has entered the universe in his resurrection from the dead? There is a new way of being. That is what you will be. And let me, with one of my New Testament professors, I think piggybacking on C.S. Lewis, let me also suggest something that's also speculative, but I think consistent with the resurrection narratives in the gospel. That is this, that perhaps when we see Jesus rise from the tomb, an event which nobody actually observed with their own eyes, they met the risen Christ after, but maybe it's that Jesus goes through the grave clothes and through the wall of the cave, not because he's lighter than he was before, but because he's heavier The stone then is rolled away not to let Jesus out, but to allow the disciples to go in and discover that he is in fact gone. 
By way of illustration, water is heavier than air. Water passes through air. A steel pipe is heavier than water, so it's the steel pipe that passes through the water. If we may put it this way, Jesus is more solid than he was before. His resurrected body has properties that his crucified body didn't. He's not a ghost. He is, in fact, more substantial. I don't know if that's the right way to think about it. Exactly. But contrast that with Star Trek. You know, beam me up, Scotty. Was, uh, you know, we're meant to view this beam that disentangles your atoms, ships them somewhere else, and then somehow reforms those atoms into you, making you for a time less substantial, less weighty, less coherent, less unified, less tied together than the matter around you, so that you disappear from it. But we're suggesting the opposite. You become more solid, not less. Adam was of the earth. Christ was of heaven. Adam had a body made for the earth. Christ has a body made for the new heavens and the new earth, which is enduring, imperishable, incorruptible. It is glorious, it is powerful, and it is everlasting. So, the Bible says elsewhere in Philippians 3, he will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. That's Christianity, friends. You are a body and your body is you. And if Christ saves you, then he saves your body. If he transform you, transforms you and perfects you, he transforms and perfects your body. Someone who expressed this hope very vividly was Johnny Erickson Tata, who, as perhaps if you know her story, she was injured in a diving accident in 1967. It left her a quadriplegic, paralyzed from the neck down, where she has survived to this day in that condition. In her book, Heaven... Your real home, she writes this, I can scarcely believe it. I, with shriveled, bent fingers, atrophied muscles, gnarled knees, and no feeling from the shoulders down, will one day have a new body, light, bright, and clothed in righteousness, powerful and dazzling. Can you imagine the hope that gives to someone spinal cord injured like me? Or someone who is cerebral palsy, brain injured, or who has multiple sclerosis. Imagine the hope this gives someone who is manic depressive. No other religion, no other philosophy promises new bodies, hearts, and minds. Only in the gospel of Christ do hurting people find such incredible hope. And so she goes on to say in heaven... I will jump and dance and kick and do aerobics. And although I'm sure Jesus will be delighted to watch me rise on tiptoe, there's something I plan to do that may please him more, if possible, somewhere, sometime, before the party gets going, sometime before the guests are all called to the banquet table at the wedding feast of the Lamb, the first thing I plan to do on resurrected legs is to drop on grateful, glorified knees. And I will quietly kneel at the feet of Jesus. What a glorious thing, friends, awaits us. 
So three applications. Number one, don't be a fool. Paul says, don't be foolish. Don't be a fool by denying the resurrection. Don't say it can't happen because you can't imagine it. You plant a seed and it becomes a flower. Who would have thought? Number two, don't fear. The bodies of millions of saints who are in Christ no longer exist even as ashes. Many bodies are destroyed by war, destroyed by accident, destroyed by water, by worm, by fire. Yet nowhere does scripture say that your body's only going to be raised if it gets embalmed before you go into the grave. We may bury our bodies. We may donate our organs to medical science. We may have our organs removed. Nothing we can do will thwart God's purpose for us at the resurrection. By God's power, the God who can do anything he wants, he will raise us up. So don't be a fool. Don't fear. And lastly, don't be short-sighted. This life is not all there is. What's coming is better than you can imagine. C.S. Lewis, in his story, The Chronicles of Narnia, finishes a seven-volume series in this way, and, and I want to take a few minutes and finish the book with you. As in his book, The Last Battle, he imagines the resurrection life for creatures who've gone to live in Aslan's country, the true heavenly Narnia. Here's how he puts it. The unicorn summed it up the way that everybody was feeling. He stamped his right forehoof on the ground and he neighed and then he cried, I've come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. Bree hee hee, come further up, come further in. He shook his mane and he sprang forward into a great gallop, a unicorn's gallop, which in our world would have carried him out of sight in a few moments. But now a most strange thing happened. Everyone else began to run. And they found to their astonishment that they could keep up with him. Not only the dogs and the humans, but even fat little puzzle and short-legged Poggin the dwarf. The air flew in their faces as if they were driving fast in a car without a sunscreen, windscreen. The country flew past as if they were seeing it from the windows of an express train. Faster and faster they raced, but no one got hot or tired or out of breath. So they ran faster and faster till it was more like flying than running. And even the eagle overhead was going no faster than they. And they went through winding valley after winding valley and up the steep sides of hills and faster than ever down the other side, following the river and sometimes crossing it and skimming across mountain lakes as if they were living speedboats. Further up and further in, roared the unicorn, and no one held back. They charged straight at the foot of a great hill and then found themselves running up it almost as water from a broken wave runs up a rock out at the point of some bay. Though the slope was nearly as steep as the roof of a house and the grass was smooth as a bowling green, no one slipped. And for us, this is the end of the story can almost truly say that they all lived happily ever we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after but for them it was only the beginning of the real story and all their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and title page now at last they were beginning chapter one 
of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. And in our world, friends, you who believe in Jesus will rise to everlasting life in glory and dwell forever in Emmanuel's land where there is joy everlasting and health forever. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we bless you and thank you. Thank you for these great and precious promises. Help us to believe what you believe about these things. And help us to exalt in Christ who gives them to us in his name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing praise to